Greetings, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me on Satiate today. I'm Sue Van Rays, functional nutritionist, food psychology specialist, author, and founder of Boulder Nutrition here in Boulder, Colorado. I also lead women's wellness and yoga retreats, both locally and internationally. Food has so much power. Power to nourish, to strengthen, and to connect us to one another. That said, it's a true rarity to find a woman today who is at peace with her plate, with how she eats, how she looks, and how she feels in her body. Satiate is here to engage in meaningful conversation about what it really means to have food and body freedom, to show up in life as who you really are, to trust yourself tracking the intelligent design of your body, and to prosper with embodied self-care in doing so. Satiate offers you functional nutrition and food psychology insights, some of my favorite special guests and experts from all over the world, and some personal insights and anecdotes that can act as salve for your soul. If you love this podcast, I would be so grateful if you head over to iTunes, subscribe, and leave a review. That way, you'll be sure to be alerted when new episodes are published and help me spread the word so that other women in need can find their way to this important conversation. I'm so excited to introduce to you today's special guest on Satiate, Dr. Anita Johnston. She is a depth psychologist, storyteller, and author of Eating in the Light of the Moon, how women can transform their relationships with food through myth, metaphor, and storytelling which has been published in seven languages. She has been working in the field of women's issues, eating difficulties, and body image distress for over 35 years, and is currently the founder and executive director of iPhono, an eating disorders residential treatment program in Maui. She is the co-creator of the Light of the Moon Cafe, an online workbook and support circle for eating in the light of the moon providing self-study and interactive courses for women from all around the world. Dr. Johnston provides virtual individual consultations and conducts workshops internationally. She is best known for integrating metaphor and storytelling into her training as a clinical psychologist to explain the complex issues that underlie struggles with eating, exercise, and body image. It is such an honor to have her on Satiate today as I have been reading stories from Eating in the Light of the Moon for many years to my clients and on my local and international retreats. I hope you enjoy today's episode of Satiate. Thank you so much for joining me today on Satiate. What an honor to have you here. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. It's interesting when we set up this interview because I've been using your book, Eating in the Light of the Moon, for a long time, many years, as one of my go-to resources with my client work and my retreats. 
So what a treat that I get to meet you in person. Oh, good. So I thought it would be great to hear a little bit about your journey, mm -hmm. basically like where you started and how your work evolved to become what it is today. Well, I think I took the scenic route. <laughs> it wasn't very direct. Um, let's see, it started off with my being particularly interested in women's issues and cultural issues. I grew up on the island of Guam in the 1950s and 60s in a multi-ethnic uh, home. And so I was always aware of how different cultures responded differently. And then the indigenous culture that is my background was a matrilineal culture. So, so seeing how that mm, didn't quite fit with the more patriarchal American culture um, was always fascinating to me as even, even as a kid. So I think as I, as I grew older and then decided to go to college, I was studying psychology, but I was really interested in more the, the cultural aspects of it, which wasn't back in those days, that was kind of frowned upon. That was sort of like kept separate, but that's how I got interested uh, in. And then because I was particularly interested in women's issues, I came upon the struggle with eating and body image as something that was so pervasive that I got really curious about that. Hmm. And so within the psychology and then you merging that with these women's issues around food and body, what were some of the things that stood out to you the most? Well, what, what I did eventually discover is that folks who were struggling with eating disorders, eating difficulties, body image distress, um, first of all, they, they came in all shapes and sizes, all walks of life, um, all ethnicities, all ages. And, uh, but the, I was looking for the common denominator, like what was, what was the connecting element? And what I found is that they were very emotionally sensitive and highly intuitive individuals, what I call thin skinned. And, and by, by thin skinned, I mean, some, you know, something that might be no big deal to somebody else penetrates their very bones. And so they were particularly uh, sensitive to and, and also vulnerable to pressures in the culture that we lived in because of this thin skin nature. And, um, and especially because we live in a culture that doesn't value being emotionally sensitive, right? It just says, oh, you're overreacting or get over it or what's wrong with you or you're making trouble or certainly doesn't value uh, being intuitive. Uh, that's, that's looked at as crazy. Where are the facts? If you can't prove it, you're just making trouble. And, and so they had to find some way to diminish this, this bright light that, that they were in order to try to fit in because they could feel like, okay, there's something, there's something um, 
different. There must be something wrong with me. And then that became the theme. And then, of course, the culture would say, well, yeah, if you don't look a certain way or if you don't act a certain way, then, yeah, there's something wrong with you. And so that sort of as I followed their stories, that was the connecting thread that I saw. And the flip side of that is that once they learned how to embrace their emotional sensitivity and their keen intuition, then um, uh, they became the people the world has been waiting for. Mm, I love that. Thank you for saying that. There's so many people in my world and in my life Mm -hmm. and in my private practice that experience that level of sensitivity and Mm-hmm. myself included it's such a blessing when we can use it for that purpose of the greater good and the intuition and the inner wisdom and being able to recognize some of those nuances that often get overlooked in our daily life mm-hmm. and yet when we don't know how to manage our way through that it's such a burden and right. it can feel like overwhelming so I the love sad part is that that the interpretation is oh there must be something wrong with me so they may pick up on um um hypocrisies or in the culture or um uh new more nuanced things that other people weren't aware of and they would assume that they were the problem oh my goodness absolutely I'm so curious, just to circle back to your lineage and your childhood in Guam and where you grew up, Mm -hmm. tell me what were some of the ways that shaped you as opposed to, you know, especially the matriarchal side of your lineage, how would that have influenced your work as you grew older? Well, pretty profoundly, uh, because I re- <laughs> I remember as a student in psychology um, learning about penis envy, and I went, "What? Why would why would that be a thing?" Right? <laughs> uh, because I grew up with very strong uh, women uh, in 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 my household and in my family, and I couldn't imagine. Well, why wouldn't someone not want to be female? And, uh, and my, but especially I would say, well, actually I had many mothers. So, um, and they influenced me in, in different ways. And so my biological mother, she's probably one of the smartest people I've ever known. Uh, my sisters and I, we laughed that she was Google before there was Google. Mm. <laughs> we wanted to know, Amazing. we just ask her and, and she, uh, became, now she was not from Guam. She was from the U.S. and met my dad right after World War II and came out to Guam when it was nothing but bomb holes. Um, he was he was from Guam, and she immersed herself and um, in the history of the island. And so she had her own private library that was so extensive. And I and I loved to go in there and read a lot of the old stories and the, the myths. And so that's kind of how I got into a lot of the, the, the stories that I that I love. Um, and, and so that was she was a strong influence in my life. But then there was also my grandmother, who was my dad's mother who um, was such a powerful force during World War II when the island was occupied by the, by the Japanese military. 
she hid the only American left on the island in the jungle. And because he had, because he had a, um, a ham radio. And so that's how they got the news. And if you got caught with anything American, um, you got beheaded. Um, I'm talking money, books, anything. She was a teacher and she buried the books and she had a soap factory where she would take American money. And she, so, so the stories that she would tell me, I was enthralled with because she would put that money behind a uh, a portrait of my aunt that was on the wall of her house. And when the officers would come in and they would say, oh, Mrs. Johnston, what a beautiful daughter you have. She loved it because she knew they were looking right at that money. So, you know, I, I think I inherited some of that, not to that degree, <laughs> but she was, she was tortured um, and she never, she never gave in. And so um, growing up, she would tell me, Anita, we are not on this planet just to take up space. And I knew what she meant because we, we have to make the world a better place, however we can. And so she started the first Girl Scouts, the first Red Cross, the first high school on the island. And so that had a powerful influence on me, especially in my work today, because I got involved in eating disorders before there was a field. There, was no, there wasn't a field. Nobody knew what was going on. And so I, I was like, okay, then I... I see the problem that I have to help figure out how to solve it. Right. I mean, so that, and that way she influenced me. And then, then there were two other mothers that I had and, and one was Candida and she was a little Filipina lady who lived with us from the time I was born until um, I was in my forties uh, when she passed away. But, but she, um, uh, she was all, she was just a pure heart. She just loved, loved, loved. And um, she disciplined us through heart, right? And, and that was a pretty, pretty, it was pretty powerful. She just kind of loved us and it loved us into obeying. And, and then there was Doja, who was this, this old lady. She, she lived with us also. And she was an old Chamorro woman. She didn't speak any English. And um, I had a special relationship with her that to this day, I don't really understand. My, my sister tells me, you spent hours in that room and she was old, bedridden, blind. And um, she would chant whenever there was full moon. Right? Uh, and, and, and as a teenager, I kind of got creeped out about it. But uh, um, looking back now, I realized she was teaching me some indigenous teachings that I didn't fully understand then. And, and only now I'm beginning to grasp. Um, so I've, I've had all these different strong women who kind of taught me to, to look at the world in a different way, I guess. Wow. Those are some incredible examples of strong women and <laughs> what an amazing gift to be able to grow up in that environment as opposed to what most of us see today and have seen over the many generations that come before us. It's mm. amazing to have those types of role models. And well, I appreciate it now, <laughs> but trust me, I, I, I want it off that island. I mean, Guam is little. It's 30 miles long from four to 10 miles wide. And I did not really get to leave until I was a junior in college. 
So <laughs> I, I was not appreciative of it then. It was just get me out of here. Well, when it's your normal, it's hard yeah. to know what, what else is out there. And I'm sure when you look back, you can see so many different mm -hmm. lessons in hindsight and so many different ways that you were taught to listen to yourself and to listen to your own intuition and strength. And that's obviously something that I know you and I probably share this. We try to offer and support other women in learning that through our work. Mm -hmm. So I am just you know, that's just such an amazing story. Um, and I'm curious with, you know, your sort of title or you're known as this eating psychology pioneer and storyteller. And I would love to know a little bit more about what that means to you and how that has impacted your work. Well, like I said, there was no field of eating disorders when I first started working with people. And so I was, I was trying to just figure it out as best I could, what was going on. And because I grew up with a strong storytelling tradition, mm -hmm. I found myself working with the, the clients that found their way to me, um, trying to use stories and metaphors to help um, me understand and help them understand what this process was because if something is a mystery and you don't get it then you have to use something else to describe it right i mean that's that's where the the metaphor and the storytelling would come in uh and and also i mean there are a lot of things that sort of came together my my i had two daughters little little at the time when i was trying to figure this all out and they went to waldorf schools Mm. In Waldorf school, there, there are rules, uh, if this was in like preschool, uh, of no violence, which I understood, no um, picture shirts, they weren't allowed to wear shirts or mm -hmm. school that had pictures, and no Disney talk. And I remember thinking, oh my God, what is this, a cult? So of course I did all my reading and read up all about Steiner who started the Waldorf schools. And, and he had some very deep understandings that now we know are supported by neuroscience. But of course, back then that wasn't the case, but he understood how important it was for children to create images in the eye of their mind. Now, when you're working with body image, this is really compelling information it helps you understand, you know, uh, why storytelling, for example, is so important and why wearing a picture shirt and we would have fights coming. My, my kids would say, but mommy, it's my favorite rose t-shirt. And I go, no, because it has a rose on it. And what Steiner understood is that children, when their brains and their minds are developing, they ought not to have too many images thrown in their face, otherwise they can't create their own. Mm -hmm. And the reason that it's so important to create your own images is that out of that grows the capacity for um, empathy and compassion because you have to imagine, right? So he was all about strengthening the imaginal capacity um, as brains and minds are developing. And, and then if you look at the world we live in today where we're bombarded bombarded with these images about what people are supposed to look like, um, you can see why we do have an epidemic of eating disorders and body image distress, because we weren't given that safe space to create our own images about who we are. 
Um, we, we're vulnerable to the images that the media and, and just will put out there. So I don't think this is kind of like a, a long answer. Not even no, sure I love it. I love it. <laughs> so that's how I started using, because when you use stories or when you use a metaphor, um, you have to create that image in your own eyes mind. And that strengthens that capacity to create the image of who you are. I love that. Both of my kids went to Waldorf school as oh, well. So I'm you familiar <laughs> with, with some of what you're saying. And when you said thin skin, that, that yeah. was an anthroposophical term that I was introduced to when my kids were young. Now they're in their twenties. Mm -hmm. um, one of my kids particularly being incredibly thin skinned. So that was, you know, mm -hmm. trying to help him along was quite a journey. And, um, but the funny thing I remember about it that speaks to what you're saying is so there was no you know the tv thing was a big thing yeah. we had the same thing with the clothing mm -hmm. and i remember going on a vacation and taking my son to my parents house mm -hmm. and of course they had the tv on and he was probably like four or five mm -hmm. and um so he went back to preschool after spring break after this trip to my parents house in vancouver and he started playing television at school, like playing a game called television. He wasn't acting out like a Disney character or he wasn't taking on a, you know, an idea, but he was actually like imagining what would it be like to be, you know, a television yeah. character. Cause it was like kind of new for him to be immersed in television on all day long. And I remember the teacher calling and saying like, I'm noticing this behavior where um, your son is playing television. I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, he, He's processing what that all meant um, and yeah. through his play. And it just kind of was a funny example of, you know, when we distance ourselves from that, yeah. instead of being consumed by the actual story, mm -hmm. he was consumed by the, the appliance. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, um, I mean, it's, it's so powerful though, because if you, you know, I remember thinking like, well, wait, why, why no Disney talk? I, Disney wasn't even around when Steiner was on the planet. And, and yet, <laughs> if I were to say to you or to any of the listeners, Snow White, we all have the same image, right? Her, She's got that dark hair parted down the middle, those two little bun-like things. We, we even know that the dress with those puffy sleeves and yellow and, and blue and red. Disney has robbed us of our own Snow White right? Because that image was presented up. And so that's just a little example of how um, body image, for example, has just been delivered up to us at, at very, in a very vulnerable way. Which is exactly why we think of our body as how it looks in a mirror mm -hmm. instead of how it feels or yeah. how we want to take care of it or how we express ourselves through a body, mm -hmm. which is really more of an inside out approach. Whereas the mirror is obviously an outside in and it makes so much sense what you're saying. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about what you found with the women you worked with in some of the incredible storytelling and myths that you use, some of them in your books, and I'm sure there's many more. Um, what did you notice would happen when women were told these stories through your, in your practice? Yeah, what's really great is, and, and I use a lot of the old 
folk tales and fairy tales and and um, I use them also in my online platform, Light of the Moon Cafe. And so I'm, I'm continually hearing responses from people all the time because I tell those stories and then we have a forum and people share how they relate to it. And the cool thing about it is even though some of these stories, believe it or not, are 6,000 years old. Mm right? Beauty and the Beast, they've been able to take apart people that study language to kind of trace the root word, 6,000 years old. Now, mind you, people haven't even been writing for that long. So these stories were passed down, usually by women, you know, people, even like Grimm's fairy tales, the Grimm brothers, they didn't write those stories. There were a couple of young guys and they were young, they were in their twenties and they went around and they, they um, talked to their sister's friends and all these women and they wrote the stories down and that's how they've come to us. But the, so the idea that you can take these ancient old stories and each person has their own individual reaction to the story that relates to them and highlights for them what the particular issues are in their lives. So that's the power of these myths. And I love to use it for recovery because that way I can be sure that this, I'm not imposing my idea of recovery on someone. They are extracting for themselves what the salient features are for them and, and what the sequencing needs to be for them as they pull out of what aspects of the story um, they can relate to in terms of their own struggle. Wow. So really each time you tell a story to either a group of women or one woman, they're experiencing a different version of the story based on their belief systems, their life experience, all the different paradigms that they work within, maybe their sensitivity and also within whatever it is they're struggling with. Right. And that's why I like to ask, wait, what aspect of the story did you relate to? Because some people say, oh, this really disgusted me or, oh, this this uh, um, horrified me or, oh, I felt really sad about this. And and then it, it's tapping into a part of their own psyche where often there are there are wounds that need to be healed. And but they identify them. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, it's cool. <laughs> I know we haven't necessarily planned for this, but I'm wondering if you have a short example of a story that you love to tell that would demonstrate some of this yeah. and take our listeners through. Yeah. So I'm always on the hunt for stories. And this one I found in an art museum uh, in, where was I? Kansas City. Huh. And uh, there was this artist who had taken a bunch of um, paintings by some of the masters and then painted his own version in really vibrant colors, but then took plexiglass and bolted the plexiglass in front of the painting and then took white paint and wrote some stories. So this is one that I, that I came upon. So the painting in this case was the painting of the judges. And so you had a bunch of judges, you know, wearing their, um, their, their robes and their white wigs that came down and sitting behind a bench. And here's the story that was painted in front of it. Yay. There was once this nightingale in the forest and she was singing and singing and singing. And she was so enjoying the sound of her voice reverberating through the treetops. 
And along came a crow and the crow said, oh my God, would you shut up already? That's the worst thing I've ever heard. And the nightingale said, oh no, 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 no. We nightingales, we're known for our beautiful song. And the crow says, I don't think so. That's just like the worst thing I've ever heard. It's like you're polluting the forest with all that racket. And they started quarreling. And then along came a pig. And the pig heard them quarreling and said, look, look, look. Um, why don't I resolve this for you? We'll have a contest and I'll be the judge. And then we'll end this once and for all. And so the crow and the nightingale agreed. And the crow cawed. And the nightingale sang her song and the pig immediately declared the crow the winner. And the nightingale burst into tears and the crow says, oh, look at you. I can't even believe you. Not only are you a terrible singer, but you're a lousy loser. And the nightingale said, I'm not crying because I lost. I'm crying because a pig was my judge. Now, this is not a diss on pigs. I love pigs, but what do pigs think about music, right? So, so, so the story is consider the source. Consider the source of who's judging you, right? Mm -hmm. Wow. And, and, so, and so like, yeah, so I'll tell this story at the cafe, for example. And then people respond because in, in the forum and they'll say, oh, yeah, the source was my brother who made fun of my thunder thighs. What was, what was going on with him that he was so interested in my thighs? I, I should take a look at what the source was. Or someone else would say, oh yeah, I came from um, a, a, a diet obsessed family and my mother was always on a diet. And I look at pictures of what I looked like when she put me on a diet, I was perfectly fine because, but I didn't consider the source. Mm -hmm. So each person can just look at their own history and look at, you know, the mean things that were said, or sometimes well-intentioned, but ignorant things that were said, and they can then not have that be something that holds so much power over them once they consider where it came from. Mm. Wow. That's incredible. And I love the story. I love that you're always on the hunt for stories and that you can take them in this incredible way. That story has many different layers to it, but here we are applying it to this epidemic of women's health around food and body image that is so overwhelming and so prevalent everywhere we turn. Um, I, I can totally see how when we can break down all the aspects within the story that it can really open up some new ways of thinking about mm -hmm. our perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's the, and now we know with neuroscience, this is what's so cool. Um, I, I used to call it the lights going off in someone's eyes when, 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 it, when someone would get it, when there would be this shift mm -hmm. uh, in their understanding and they would, they would give their experience new meaning that was freeing for them. It would be like this light would go on in their eyes. Well, now we know huh, with neuroscience, they've, they've been able to run all these studies and mapping the brain while, the, while people were having insights. And they now know there's a part of the brain that exists right over our right ear called the anterior superior temporal gyrus. And when you get it, you know, when you have those moments and you get it, those aha moments, there's a blast of gamma waves that comes out of this little fold in the, in the brain. 
and um, it creates new neural pathways. Mm-hmm. How cool is that? Right? Yeah, literally mm-hmm. transforming our brain yeah. through deeper understanding and a renewed mm-hmm. perspective on potentially mm-hmm. a very repetitive thought that we've maybe yeah. had for a yeah. lifetime. And right. here we are shifting that perspective, even by just like two millimeters, mm-hmm. let's say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, and exactly. not only are we able to then look at things through a slightly slightly different lens, but we're also able to create new neural pathways that hopefully we can get patterned in a way that's beneficial. It yeah, it's amazing. I mean, I like to tell um, my patients that I have an eating disorder program on Maui, a residential program. And um, I try to assure them that, because sometimes the repetition of what we ask of them is annoying <laughs> or these stories are annoying. And I, I like to remind them, look, you're changing your brain. And when you leave here, you're taking it with you. <laughs> yeah. So it's worth, worthwhile. <laughs> Absolutely. And such a gentle way of approaching a conversation around a specific pattern because it's not so you know overwhelming when we're thinking about it within the stories and myths. Mm-hmm. And I'd love to hear what you think about. I'm sure you have a great answer for this based on your work. You know, we've been sharing myths and stories since the beginning of time. I personally have a big passion for some of the Hindu myths and some of the goddess myths, and I share them a lot on my retreats and. I'm curious kind of your perspective on why these ancient myths and stories are so meaningful in Mm -hmm. our lineage and in our cultures, in various cultures, really, Mm -hmm. Um, because they seem to be, you know, fueled with so much potency and Mm -hmm. message that we can apply in so many different ways. I'd love to hear your perspective on it. Yeah, I think what they what they help do is they bring to the surface aspects of being human that our culture has dismissed, disregarded, denied, devalued, right? Uh, and and it is a little subversive because it's like, um, for, and and that's why I use it with people with eating disorders is that they're all re- their defense is already there for you know uh, why they should or shouldn't behave the way they do, and it's like okay, well let's talk about this. Let me tell a story about these goddesses, right? And and that allows um, aspects within their psyche, which we call archetypes, to get quickened, uh, much the way we know with epigenetics, um, our genes get, um, what do they call it? Oh, I can't think of the term, but it's sort of like they have to be awakened in order to express. That's the word. Express. And so um, these archetypes, according to Carl Jung, he said, there's no healing without archetypal energy. Mm -hmm. So these stories are packed with these archetypes that exist. And and what an archetype is, is it's um, a concept that crosses all culture and all time. So if you take the concept of mother, if you could go all the way back in time, you're going to find that concept. If you could go into the future, you'll find that concept. If you go to any culture on the planet, you'll find that culture. I mean, excuse me, any culture on the planet, you'll find that concept. So mother is an archetype. But then I like to use that archetype 
that is, that's embedded in the stories, bring it forth, and then work with it consciously and deliberately to help heal. So for example, with disordered eating, the archetype of mothering, and I, I like to use it as a verb, not a noun, because it's an energy, mm-hmm. um, uh, is, is, is so connected to the struggle with food and eating, right? Because mothering energy is nurture and comfort. And if, and our very first experience on the planet of being in distress, ah, we're either given the breast or the bottle and we go, ah, so mothering energy is soothing and we are hardwired to get it from food. But it becomes a problem when you think the only way you're going to get mothering energy, comfort, soothing, and that's why we say comfort foods, Mm -hmm. is either from food or from your biological mother. If you think that's the only place you're going to get it, you're going to feel like, oh, well, I'm screwed because my mother's not even on the planet or she doesn't have the capacity or the willingness or the interest to give it to me the way I want it, just the way I want it. So that healing requires learning how to access that energy that exists everywhere because it's archetypal. So mothering energy exists within you and you need to learn how to cultivate a strong inner mother, but you can find it in your, your husband, in your dog. You, you can find it in, the, in a neighbor or coworker or mother nature. There's a reason we say mother nature, not father nature right? So it's archetypal. (coughs) Excuse me. And when you learn how to work with that energy, then you're not restricted to having it get played out through eating behaviors. Oh, profound. I love it. And also it gives us the opportunity to think maybe, so if we're not a mother, we have mother, we can still have mothering energy. Yes. And if we are able to cultivate that mother, turn it inward. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the ways I always like to write about Mother's Day is how can we mother ourselves? Yeah, um, That's coming up. And mm-hmm. it's just a great reminder that we all have all of these archetypes within us mm-hmm. and we can really cultivate any of them in our lives at any time, no matter where we are in what point in our healing, what point in our lives, what age. So it's... Yeah. Um, Archetypes are so powerful. Is there any other archetypes that you work with a lot? I do. There's four. Um, And I just, I have a course that I developed at Light of the Moon Cafe called Four Faces of the Feminine, because there's four archetypes that um, are accessible to us, as you said, regardless of chronological age. And they are ones that show up in fairy tales as the maiden, the mother, the queen and the crone. And they each have different gifts that we can access once we understand the particular energetic constellation that they hold for us. And so again, once you once you start to recognize these particular energetics, you can access within yourself, but you can also find other people that are carrying that energy as well. So um, th- yeah, for me, working with the archetypes is just really profound. Mm, I love this so much. And as far as like what we can do 
to begin this process for ourselves around mm -hmm. both metaphor, story, archetypes, what would you say are some maybe small steps that you recommend within your work? Well, the first step is to understand that there's meaning. There's meaning to whatever the struggle is, okay? Because a lot of times we say, I'm doing this because I, I'm stupid or I'm broken or I'm damaged goods. And no, to understand that, that this energy is trying to move through us and we just don't quite understand it. And, and so the first thing is to recognize there's meaning to whatever it is you're doing in terms of your struggle with your body, with food, whatever. And then the second is to get curious rather than judgmental mm. about what that is. And so, you know, um, uh, just getting really curious, even if you say, well, I don't know what it means. Oh, I wonder why I don't know, right? Get curious about not knowing um, to just bring as much curiosity to it. And then from there, you can start, as you get curious, you can start to see maybe certain patterns will emerge that will reveal uh, more meaning to it. And out of that meaning, as you get, as it gets clearer and clearer, then you're going to understand what it is maybe you need to do differently. So, so there's a Zen saying that says, don't get stuck looking at the finger pointing to the moon. Look at the moon, right? And so mm -hmm. if you start to really investigate um, stories you tell yourself, for example, uh, about you know, what you can or can't do, you know, consider the source is one thing. Or, or uh, Byron Katie says, you can't let go of the story, but if you investigate it, the story lets go of you. Mm, right. So this is, yeah, and this is where the curiosity can really, can really be helpful. At first of all, you know, understanding there is meaning. Second of all, get curious about what it would be, and then look for patterns. And so that's where, you know, in what way is this like that? Um, so that's how I find the metaphors. Is like, oh, that's kind of like this. So when we're trying to, when we're wrestling with the invisible world, right? And, and emotions and intuitions, they're invisible. It, it helps to look to the visible world to see if there's any pattern out there that follows that. And, and nature is, is the best to find the metaphors because nature tells the truth. Mm. Do you have a specific example you could use as a metaphor in nature that you've used in your work? Well, there's my, it's, there's one that's my favorite and it's my favorite because it seems to be everybody else's favorite. So that makes it <laughs> my favorite. <laughs> and I get emails all the time from people all over the world that said, this shifted my perception of what I was doing with food. So this is, uh, you always begin, of course, with imagine the imagination, right? Because according to Jung, that is where the um, transformative power resides. So imagine, imagine you're on the banks of a raging river. It's pouring down rain, you slip, you fall in, you're drowning, you're getting pulled down through the rapids and along comes a big log and you grab on and the log saves your life. It keeps your head above water when surely you would have drowned. And eventually it carries you to a place in the river where the water is calm. And from there you can see the riverbank but you can't get there because you're still holding onto the log. 
So the irony is the very thing that just saved your life is getting in the way of you going where you want to go in life. And to make it more complicated, there's always people on the riverbank yelling, let go of the log, let go of the log. And you feel like an absolute idiot because you can't let go of the log. Well, the way I see it is letting go of the log might not be the best thing to do initially. Because what happens if you let go of the log, start to swim to shore, get halfway there and realize, oh, shoot, I don't have the strength to make it. Well, that means you don't have the strength to make it back to the log either. And you're really sunk now. So I believe we all have a wise part of ourselves that will not, will not let us let go of anything until we're good and ready. Mm. So what do you do instead? Well, let go of that log and try floating. And as soon as you start to sink right back on and then let go of the log and practice treading water. And when you get tired, grab back on. Then let go of that log and swim around at once. Grab back on, twice, grab back on, 10 times, 100 times, 200 times, whatever it takes for you to have the strength and confidence to make it to shore. Then you let go of the log. Now, you notice I'm talking about things in nature, rivers and logs and water, but really I'm talking about the recovery experience also simultaneously, right? And because um, I'm, I'm connecting to that feeling of drowning, right? Because that's what it feels like, you're drowning. But then introducing the idea that maybe whatever your struggle is, whatever you've been doing, maybe it saved your life in some way. Maybe it kept you from drowning in some really you know, strong emotional currents. And of course, there's always people that want to simplify and tell you just do blah, 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 or why can't you blah, 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 because they have no idea that this, that, that the function of the log, the function of the disordered eating, the function of the, the, the negative thoughts about your body, it serves a function and it would behoove you to find out what that function is. Why? So you can develop the skills that you need to put it out of a job but you first have to know what it's doing for you in the first place, rather than just looking at what it's doing to you. It's getting in my way of me going where I wanna go in life. Yeah, but it's also keeping you afloat. So unless you learn other ways to stay afloat, you're not gonna be able to get where you wanna go. Yeah, I'm really glad you chose that story. That's actually one of my favorite stories in <laughs> The Light of the Moon. And it really spoke to me so much because most of our struggles and most of our patterns that are currently weighing us down are things we develop to protect ourselves. Of course. In some way. And we often, you know, because we're forward looking, we don't always think about that in retrospect. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a much more gentle and self-compassionate approach to be able to recognize that we did what we could in the moment, especially when we're really young and we don't have very many options Right. to choose a coping skill that works, mm -hmm. that protects us and makes us feel safe or in control or, you know, whatever, whatever the underlying issue is. And then we can gently notice when we're ready to let go of the log instead of just being told like let go of the damn log for already you know which i think is so common in our culture it's like mm -hmm. there we don't give space for healing 
very well as as a culture right we we expedite we want everything to happen so quickly and we override um a lot and so we end up basically sinking Mm -hmm. to go with the metaphor Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. when really if we can strengthen and do a little bit of practice and training and get ourselves prepared we have so much better chance of shifting like shifting the pattern Mm -hmm. I love it. Thank you so much. I would love to hear from you. I, my podcast obviously called satiate. Mm -hmm. Um, I would love to hear what satiate means to you. And if that comes through any kind of metaphor or story, you know, that is also welcome. I can't help myself. Right. I think (laughs) metaphor. And so when I hear the word satiate, I think fulfillment, right? Fulfill. So it has the words, you know, to fill, but also to be fulfilled, right? Because that takes you more into matters of the heart and soul is really what fulfillment is. And so um, you fill up in, in greater ways than just the physical. Is, that's what comes to mind for me. Mm, beautiful. I love it. There's, it's always a great conversation to have with various people I've interviewed on my podcast because everyone has their own lens and their own you know work and the way that they think through their own perspective and it's um it's been really fun to ask that question so thank you I am just incredibly inspired by this conversation and by your work and clearly you are such a masterful storyteller and beautiful speaker. And it's just such an honor to have you here sharing your wisdom today. Well, thank you. It's, it's what I love to do the best. (laughs) Wonderful. Well, I look forward to staying in touch and thank you so much for being here. Thank you. It is such an honor to spend time with you here on Satiate and may this conversation be of benefit. From my heart to yours, I wish you health and happiness for the coming season, and may we meet again here very soon. Take good care.